Welcome to the next track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams, and I'm Kirk McElhern. You can find episode show notes, past episode archives, and listener discussions at our website, thenexttrack.com. And in between episodes, follow us on Twitter at NextTrackCast. Today, we're very happy to welcome the extraordinary violinist Alina Ibragimova. Alina, thank you very much for joining us from your bunker in London. <laughs> yeah, thank you for having me. How, how are you doing in the lockdown? I'm doing pretty well, I think. I, I, I'm enjoying being at home, which, you know, for a traveling musician doesn't happen so much. So yeah. um, I'm kind of cherishing that. And I'm practicing lots, um, things that I usually don't have time to practice. I've started learning the Paganini caprices. Um, so, yeah, it's kind of fun. I'm, I'm trying to keep a routine, you know, to not get lazy and... Uh, yeah. yeah, I'm having a good time so far. <laughs> okay, that's suspicious, um, being locked down in an epidemic and having fun. Um, yeah. <laughs> so we've talked to a few musicians recently, and your life is like a well-oiled machine. You've got concerts and recording sessions and festivals scheduled for two or three years, and all of a sudden everything's just stopped. What? Do you have any perspective on the future? Because uh, we're both in the UK, and the UK government said that this could last for six months. How can you take that in your mind and plan ahead now when you're so used to planning far in the future, knowing that so many things are going to be cancelled? Uh, well, things are getting more and more cancelled every day for me. Um, yeah. And I, yeah, I have no idea at the moment. And it's also strange because now and then my agent will call me and we will be discussing still now projects for like 2023 and and that's a very strange feeling when you know i don't have i don't know what will happen next month i don't know anything at all you know what what um where i'm gonna be if i if if i'll still you know be learning paganini caprices and sing one time (laughs) (laughs) you may have plenty of time to master them yeah i hope so yeah 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 Strong hands. Normally, you'd think 2023, and it would be like, yes, you'd look in your calendar, and everything would be fine. But now it's just, it, it's just strange, isn't it's, it? It really is. It's really very strange, yeah. Especially when you when you plan that far in advance, and you know, you really know what's happening. It's it's a yeah, strange feeling, and I, and I think it's um, yeah, I think we can kind of learn from it as well that to to take nothing for granted and. Uh, I think a lot of people are seeing it as an opportunity, like you are, to, to yeah. well, I'm going to do something I don't normal, I'm not normally able to do. One of the things that we found is that people have all the time in the world, and then they suddenly realize, I can't, they have other obligations because they're staying home, and they have to take care of their kids, or they have to do something else. But there are others, like us, actually, who have, we love working at home, we've been working at home, it's, it's not anything unusual, but, you know, making the step from... <laughs> You know, not being home and working and working at home is, is quite dramatic for some people. Yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. I can imagine that, yeah. Well, Doug, maybe now that you have extra time, you should learn the Paganini Caprices. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's make it a challenge. <laughs> he would need to learn how to play the violin first. But I would have to do that first. I wanted to ask you about practicing because violin is one of those instruments that you for most of the works, and, and we'll talk about the solo works later, but for most of them, you have to play with someone else, whether it's a piano or a small chamber ensemble or an orchestra. In normal times, how do you practice? Do you just play your score, or do you have a recording of, say, a piano that you're playing along with? Um, I No, I don't listen to other recordings, I, I but I will study scores. 
So I will, um, and that's something that um, um, my teachers were very uh, kind of strong about. Uh, they um, always said that I have to practice from a full score so that I know all the parts, uh, you know, whether you like to or not, you, you will see them, you will learn them. Um, so I, yeah, I, I do that. Um, and yeah, try to get an overall idea of the piece, but it's important to me always to uh, have my own view on it. So I, I try not to listen to others because even if I like it, like other pe other people playing or dislike other people playing it, it's still somehow it, it plants a seed, you know? Right. But I, I was thinking more, so you've recorded a number of violin sonatas and I hope I'm getting his name right with Cédric Tiberghiem. So if you're rehearsing a new violin sonata and you're just playing your part and maybe reading the score for his part, you don't get that timing and give and take, right? Um, no, but you, if you're alone doing yeah, this. Yeah, but you 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 imagine it and then you get together and you rehearse and you uh, you know. Um, uh, in in truth, I I think that you never really truly know a piece unless you, until you've performed it. Yeah. Um, you know, once, uh, once you're in concert with the audience and, uh, th that's when, uh, the music really happens. And until, until that moment, you can only, um, imagine really what, what it's going to be like. So what's it like the first time you play a new piece and particularly you've played some contemporary music and 20th century music that's not played a lot. What's it like that first time when you play in a concert hall with an orchestra? That's, that's amazing. I mean, that's, you can never anticipate what it will be like. It's a real adventure. And, uh, uh, and I think it's an adventure for the composer as well, because you, you know, you, you, uh, they're hearing something for the first time that they've created. I, I, I can imagine that's, that must be an unbelievable feeling. Yeah. So composers don't sit in on rehearsals then, do they? Oh, yes, they do, and we work, and they change some things. And, you oh, know. do they, really? Do they, do they do make changes in the rehearsal, I see. So they're workshopping it even after they've finished it. They're still thinking about things to add. That's interesting. Um, the, the last concerto I premiered was the Rolf Valin violin concerto in, um, in the proms, and we really worked from the very beginning. He used to uh, go through uh, even just a couple of scales to start with that he, he thought of um, and he wanted me to play. And then he showed me uh, the outline of the piece. He, he wanted, um, uh, it was quite a visual uh, idea he had uh, about the bird and, and some painting. I mean, it, it was very beautiful. So I, I really uh, felt like uh, I knew when it was born and how it was born. You know, it wasn't just a finished project. So you participated in the creation of the work in yes, some I ways. Yes, I think so. Yeah. And uh, I guess he... Uh, he heard me play and he heard me uh, say things and, and uh, I guess that influenced him as well in some way. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting that you can have the give and take, which you can't with Mozart or Bach or anyone else. There it's just the weight of tradition, isn't it? Yes, and, and that's that we have to find our own imagination to... So I've, I've often read and, and seen in interviews with performers that you don't get a lot of rehearsal time. When you go to a new city with an orchestra, let's say you're playing Bach violin concertos, how much time do you get to get familiar with an orchestra that you've never played with, a conductor maybe you've never played with? Um, it's, it kind of differs in, in different places. Uh, you know, here in, in the UK, there are some times where you just get the dress rehearsal and you literally just play through. Um, but uh, I would say the norm would be one rehearsal and one general. 
sometimes two rehearsals in the channel, but that's really, that's quite rare. That doesn't sound like a lot. And, and I guess that just, I guess it just assumes that you know the piece so perfectly and that the orchestra is so competent that you're just going to fit together. Yeah, but it's also, you know, it's also what we do. So it has yeah. to happen, you know? Right, it's, yeah. Uh, <laughs> that's what you do. <laughs> it's like when we talk, to, we talk to a conductor who specializes in, what was it, Wagner? Yeah. And so when, when someone wants to do a Wagner program, they hire the Wagner guy. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> that's a, so that's an interesting point. How much repertoire can a soloist like you know well enough to be able to perform regularly like that? Uh, I know that when I see biographies of, of, say, opera singers, you see the list of their repertoires, maybe a dozen operas that they're ready to perform. Well, I, I've i tried to learn a lot of repertoire over the years. I've, I've always been excited uh, about learning new things. Um and and it, it, the spectrum is quite big. So I, I I do baroque things. I do romantic. I do contemporary. I don't want to limit myself. Um, uh, but it it really depends on how much time I have to uh, practice. So you know there there are some pieces that you know if I was asked to play tonight I could do it. You know, um, but others that I would need a little little longer to remember. You know. Uh, so it really depends, um, but I, I think it's uh, it's important, especially when when you're studying, when you're in teenage years, you know, early twenties, to really try and build up as much repertoire as possible because that's when you really remember, you know, your fingers remember. Yeah, that's true. And then we hear these wonderful stories about someone who stepped in at the last minute because someone was taken ill, yeah. whether it's a soloist or, or a conductor or even an actor. And that's where uh, there are all these breaks. Isn't that how Long Long became famous, in fact, the Chinese pianist? Possibly. Um, uh, I think it's quite a common way to start. So, uh, you know, when, when a big agency takes you on... Uh, they will offer you lots of cancellation concerts. And that's what I did in the beginning as well. I did, I did many, many. And I remember there was a violinist who canceled okay. the whole big tour and I replaced her in everything. So, and that's really helpful and also builds up your own stamina, you know? It's, yes, it's, absolutely. It's quite a, quite a pressure to just go and be ready. And, and I love that challenge and I still kind of do sometimes. I, occasionally I'll accept a cancellation. So you're not the kind of person I would trust to go get the drinks at the bar and bring them back to the table <laughs> if I were a violinist. <laughs> Possibly not. <laughs> so the stamina thing, the uh, we were talking to Angela Hewitt last week, 100 concerts a year. I mean, how do you do it? Particularly because of the time zone is in the traveling and all. Yeah, it can be complicated. It's 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 not a simple life. I mean, we. Uh, I always think that the actual playing and the concerts and the rehearsing and practice is what I do for pleasure, actually. But the travel and everything that comes with it, you know, the the tiredness, the being away from home, uh, you know. Not I can sometimes I come home and there is it doesn't make sense to buy milk because you're away so quickly, you know because you'll be away the next yeah. weekend that's that so um, those kind of things yeah that's hard so you have a really old violin and I've always wondered about that is it from 1775 something like that yeah but made by Anselmo Bellosio according to Wikipedia that's right. We always see these, well, we occasionally see these articles about someone who forgot the violin in a taxi. Yeah. How stressful must that be to carry around an instrument 
I'm not going to ask what it's worth, but that old, it certainly has a lot of value. Hmm. Um, you get used to it, and it's insured, of course. Yeah. So, uh, uh, in fact, sometimes I, it's almost more stressful to be without it because you you get like shudders suddenly. Where where's the violin? You know. Where did I put it? Yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, and I have like little, you know, before I go to bed, I have to know exactly where it is. You know, I, I know I have to know exactly the place where it is. You know, things like this. Uh, yeah. I guess it's it's a habit as well. It becomes like part of your yeah. body. You know, you you. Uh, I, I think I read back in the day that Yo Yo Ma would get a seat on an airplane next to him to put his cello. Yes, but that's that has to happen because uh, if it goes in the hole, it's too fragile. So yeah. can you imagine? Can you imagine the worry you would be going through if your cello was in the hold? <laughs> and the amount yeah. of instruments that get broken there is. Oh, oh. yeah. Jeez, yeah. yeah. So, uh, so yes, cellists uh, are always have to buy seats for their cellos, which is you know tough. It's a bit ridiculous, but you can't trust airlines, can you? I can't. No. Okay, so I want to talk about the Bach solo partitas and sonatas. This is some of my favorite music, and your recording is really my favorite. Oh, thank you. I discovered this music in my late teens. I played guitar, you know, rock and blues, and I wanted to learn some classical music. And as you know, one of the fugues is transcribed for lute, so it's transcribed for guitar, and, and it's not that hard on guitar to play that fugue. And that got me to buy, I, th I believe the first recording I had was Heinrich Jering on Deutsche Grammophon, which is obviously a different style, but that, that music just enveloped me. You're, you're used to mostly playing this music with an orchestra, with a piano, and yet then you get the Bach where it's just you and the music. How, how does that feel to, to be, I mean, to be controlling the music that's so majestic as that? Um, it's, you know, it almost becomes a, um, once you learn it and once you kind of digest it, it becomes uh, almost a meditation, and it's some, at, at its best, it almost feels like it plays you, you know, that, it, that you're not making it, but it's sort of, it's, I don't know if it's, it, it's some kind of a trance or, or what that is, but it's, um, yeah, you feel like, like it's just uh, passing, you know, that, that you're, you're observing almost. Um, How long did it take to learn those pieces well enough to perform and record them? Uh, well, I started... Is this something you started when you were young, as a teenager, some of the easier pieces? Um, the first one I played when I was, uh, when I was, I think, 10 or 11. And I even played it for Menuhin. Yes, because you studied with, in Yehudi Menuhin school in London. I did, yeah. And, and he... Um, he did a master class, and I, I remember playing it to him. Um, the first that that first movement I learned, um, and uh, and then after that, yeah, I learned learned it bit by bit, and then at about the age of fifteen, sixteen, I started really experimenting with them, and uh, I I started trying to play with no vibrato with a kind of baroque style, um, which was so new to me, and I. Probably in the beginning wasn't so good at it, uh, but you know it was quite a struggle actually. Um, those years, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen, when I was really trying to do that, um, and then I went to college, and I properly learned the Baroque violin, um, and and that really helped. And eventually, yes, learned learned the whole Bach and started. 
playing all six and then quite quickly recorded them because this recording is quite old now. <laughs> yeah, it was released in 2009. So that is quite a long time ago. So one of the things that I love about it is that there is no vibrato or almost no vibrato. I find it really annoying when a violinist is playing a long note and the note's going... It just sounds so strange. And, and I'm more partial to sort of, you know, original performance practice in, in Bach and Baroque music. But the rest of your music isn't that sort of historically informed performance. Your, your tone, however, sounds more Baroque in other works. So did you basically adapt that style and bring it into classical and modern works or? Um, well, I suppose, uh, you know, when, when you look at uh, historical performance, it's not just about Baroque music. Sure. The 19th century as well. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And, and how it progressed and how, uh, how the, I don't know what I want from sound um, uh, in, in those later uh, works so also it's uh, I think it's more gradual than than people sometimes think um, you know how how it all progressed so uh, yeah, yeah I don't see it that that you know we play uh, with no vibrato until this year and then suddenly we use a lot you know that that's not that doesn't seem natural yeah. to me well fortunately you've you've come along in an age where people are no longer killing each other over those sorts of questions because I know musicologists <laughs> well, musicologists so, yeah. used to have wars about that and and it yeah, you get an occasional one <laughs> I know I know and and, I, and not being a musician but being someone who follows and reads about this you know you you read about when Alfred Deller first recorded his his music in the 1950s his songs and when you know Gustav Leonhardt came out with his all boy cantatas and all and the reaction was so radical yet now it's almost as if the way that music has become genreless the way that people today can listen to music across genres without necessarily partitioning it it seems that in classical music that seems to be happening a lot more that there's a lot more cross-pollination yes absolutely and i think uh, every performer is expected to uh, be stylistically aware in some way now but even even when i was uh, when i was studying and when i was preparing for competitions i mean i very quickly realized that there is actually no point in me going to competitions because if I played Bach the way I wanted to play it in the first round of a like big violin competition, I would just be out, you know. <laughs> so there's a competition style. There then. at least used to be. Yes, I don't know what it is these days, but I I basically stopped doing them after I was 16 uh, because the, I I realized either either I have to conform to something that I don't want or um, yeah, or I, I'm just not going to be successful so, in that. So you win all the awards in your house, then. So because you can compete with yourself, <laughs> you know, it's funny. <laughs> so you're handing out trophies to yourself. <laughs> so again, just going back to the Bach, this doesn't seem like the type of music that the average concert audience is going to be willing to embrace for two hours. Have you performed it a lot? I'd say all six of the pieces. Mm. Yes, I, I occasionally do all six in one one evening. So I'll do three and then and then I'll take like an hour and a half break and then I do the other three. Ah, okay. So 
like two separate concerts instead of one yeah. one concert yeah. with an interval. Yeah. Yeah. So like uh, uh, two concerts with a let's say dinner break or something. Oh, that sounds nice. Yeah. Stephen Huff last week was saying that he'd like to have concerts done differently, like with longer intervals, shorter concerts, maybe starting later, and things like that. And it's true that for some works like that, you really need to digest them. You can't just go through all six without having time to relax and have a good glass of wine to get yourself primed for the next part. No, I think it's it's uh, intense listening. And okay, yes, it's hard for us to play the all six at once, but but to listen and to really uh, to really stay attentive and and you know uh, uh, be open to everything that that they offer. Um, it's it's tiring. <laughs> it is. It is. I, the only time I've heard them all in one performance, I lived in France for a long time, and I think this was in tour. Sigiswald Kaiken came and played them in a small church, and I was in the front row, and it was just fascinating. But I found myself drifting. The, the same way that you said that the music kind of just flows through you, I found that you simply can't concentrate on everything. You have to just let it flow over you for a while. Yeah, but somehow, you know, somehow it becomes part of you anyway, even if it's, even if it flows, you know, it's, uh, uh, it's kind of amazing in that sense. It can be so intense and it can be uh, space-giving, you know? Yeah. There, there's not a lot of solo violin music, is there? Uh, I think there's probably more than we realize. Well, there's not a lot that's recorded then. Maybe, maybe, yeah. Is it because it's mostly etudes that aren't, I mean, anything that measures up to Bach, you can't compare, so... Uh, no, there is nothing quite the same as Bach, of course. Um, yeah. But, you know, we have the Isaiah sonatas, uh, we have Bartok solo sonata, which is amazing. Yeah. Uh, Telemann, there are some Telemann, Telemann fantasias. Yeah. Uh, there is Bieber, uh, there is uh, all the Paganini stuff. I mean, you know, if, if you really dig a little bit... Um, that's true. Isn't it the, the Bieber ones with the scordatura? Are they for solo violin? Yes, uh, they're not all for solo violin. There's just one, one uh, Passacaglia, which uh, uh, is probably the earliest work we know that's for violin solo without accompaniment. And it's a really beautiful piece. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there, there are lots of different styles and uh, um, many of them influenced by Bach, of course, but still, um, I think there's a lot there. Not to mention all the contemporary composers. Yeah, which don't get enough, they don't get enough exposure because too many people are afraid of that music. Yeah. <laughs> it's a shame, isn't it? So your next record is coming out next month, Shostakovich Violin Concertos. That's right, yeah. Um, let's hope it gets noticed because this is just not the right time for a book or a record or a movie. I mean, movies are all canceled, but yeah. it's a shame that it's happening in this time. And I assume that you were planning on performing the, the works in the near future. Uh, well, yes, I, I was supposed to play them in March, but it all got some. I played some, but uh, uh, the Pittsburgh concert got cancelled. But what I'm hoping is that you know people will also want distraction from you know the coronavirus. That maybe we want something else as well to to think about. So I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> Have you thought of live streaming anything from your home? There's lots of musicians who are doing this. Um, maybe I don't know. I I. Um, I don't quite have the, the equipment to make it sound as good as possible, you know? So I You know, Igor Levitt's doing it, I think, with just an iPhone. Uh, Angela Hewitt's been recording these little things with an iPhone. 
I guess I'm looking at the space around you. It's it's you've got hard walls, so the sound would be kind of harsh with a violin. Um, well, there I have other rooms. I, I might, maybe yeah. I'll think about. Well, it's it, it's worth thinking about because I find it really interesting right now that so many musicians are reaching out and exposing their music to people who wouldn't see it otherwise on yeah. Facebook, on Twitter, etc. It, it is. Let's hope that this, when we get past everything, that this will, you know, bear some fruit. Because right now, you know, everyone's out of work and it's really problematic. I mean, I'm, I'm in Stratford. The Royal Shakespeare Company's closed. I think they have 700 employees. You know, you think of all the people who'd been rehe- rehearsing plays that were supposed to open, you know, just around now. And it's a real shame. It, it definitely is. But I'm hoping that, you know, people will also realize how much they want to go to concerts and uh, to see plays and to do all those things. Like I, I'm, I'm going to be desperate. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, get some TV, watch succession. It really is good. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, Alina, thanks very much for talking to us. Thank you. Good luck. All the best in your bunker. Keep working on the Paganini and maybe we can talk again after this is over and you're back out in the real world again. Yes. Sounds good. That would be great. Okay. All right. Have a great day. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks. I think what we'll do now is tell everyone about our next track picks. Kirk, what are you luxuriating in this week? I was surprised to find in our 174 past episodes, I had never picked any music by Toru Takamitsu for my next track. Takamitsu was a Japanese composer. He was the first Japanese composer to gain prominence in the West. He was very much influenced by Debussy, but then later by John Cage. I really love his music. There is a unique soundscape in his works. And there's one that I've been listening to recently. It's a 30-minute concerto for five solo percussionists. It's called From Me Flows What You Call Time. There aren't too many recordings of this, obviously, because it's such a large-scale work. I do want to mention two, however. One is on CD and download and streaming. It is by Nexus and the Pacific Symphony Orchestra. It also contains two other works by Takamitsu. But the most fascinating one is a DVD and Blu-ray release from the Berlin Philharmonic. This is conducted by Yutaka Sado, and it was a charity concert for victims of the earthquake and tsunami in March 2011. They performed the Takamitsu work and then Shostakovich's Fifth Symphony. Now, what's fascinating about this Takamitsu percussion concerto is it's very visual. That's why it's really helpful to see the video. The way the stage is set up with these ribbons and the the people wearing different colored clothes and walking around with the different instruments. It's almost a ballet in its own right. I I won't try to describe the music itself. It's, It's very 20th century, but it's not atonal or serial. It's really Takamitsu's unique style of music. So, Doug, what have you got? Well, I was on the YouTube and I was looking at uh, some of the performances that our guest Alina Ibragamova had recorded. And I glanced to the right side of the YouTube page where they frequently list other things you might like to look at. And one of those things was by Zoe Keating, who is one of my favorite cellists. Actually, I don't really have a lot of favorite cellists other than Zoe Keating and my mother. But Zoe Keating is a very interesting cellist in that she doesn't just play the cello with the cello. She uses tape loops and effects and MIDI pedals and all kinds of cool techno stuff to create um, the basis of her songs. You know, one of the things that I I, I really like about this technique is the 
it's quite a challenge to to not only play the melodies, but to also be responsible for the rhythm and the bass section and the percussion section, all of which you are creating with the single instrument that you have. And of course, as I said, she's able to do this by uh, using a computer and, and recording as she goes along. The fascinating thing about it, though, is that she's not just thinking about the songs that she's composed and just playing them back. She has to think about where the song is now, where is the song going to be in a minute or so, uh, how much time can I use to create you know the backup tracks for a future piece of the song there's just so much going on uh in these usually quite simple or they're not overly ornate as you can imagine you could probably get way ahead of yourself with this kind of technology but she creates some very nice musical pieces and the album that i'm going to listen to is called into the trees it was recorded in 2010 it's it's a meditative album, but it's not the sort of thing you listen to and meditate. You listen to how she is performing the song. And it it's and to me it's just really an amazing thing that she's able to juggle all these cats in the air. The the, the live playing and the recorded stuff and the looped stuff and the effects and everything. But I think if you haven't listened to this kind of music, you might think that it's it's very sterile or very mechanical. It is not, I assure you. It's it's quite delightful, quite beautiful in many cases. Zoe Keating, Into the Trees, is my next track. This was episode number 175 of The Next Track. Thank you very much for listening. We recorded our interview with Alina Ibragamova on Wednesday, April 1st, 2020. Your comments on any episode are welcome. You can start or join a conversation on this episode's show page at our website. You'll also find links to some of the things we talked about in the show notes for this episode. Just visit thenexttrack.com. If you like the show, we'd appreciate it if you gave us a rating or a review wherever you get your podcasts. And if you can't leave a review, be sure to tell your friends and family about us on social media. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks again. We'll talk to you next time.